this week's Friday Five is a really special episode. In it, I'm going to cover uh, five lessons on negotiating from Steve Jobs. And all of them come from this book, which is one of the, uh, my favorite books that I've read over the last six months. It's To Pixar and Beyond, My Unlikely Journey with Steve Jobs to Make Entertainment History, and it's written by Lawrence Levy. Now, you know, there's a fascinating uh, backstory in this book I'm going to just give you 30 seconds on, and then we're going to jump in to these five lessons on negotiating from Steve Jobs. But the reason this book is so incredible is, you know, I think we've all, we, we can all witness today how uh, successful Pixar is as a company. I mean, you know, it's remarkable to think about that it's an, it's the first animation studio since literally Disney's launch back 50 plus years ago. You know, these things don't come around very often. And the reason this book's so fascinating is, you know, there's other uh, incredible books like Ed Kotmull's, um Creativity Inc., which will tell you about the creative machine that drives Pixar's success. This book is very different. So Lawrence Levy effectively joins Pixar, um, I think about two, three years before Pixar goes public. At the time, Steve Jobs had had the company for about 10 years. You know, he initially uh, acquired it for $10 million. He, he paid, uh, he paid um, gosh, George Lucas $5 million and then invested $5 million as working capital in the business. Uh, he went on to invest another $40 million. So Lawrence Levy joins when Steve Jobs is $50 million in the hole. They're still years away from releasing a feature film. And uh, Steve Jobs effectively recruits Lawrence Levy to help make Pixar successful, actually turn it into a successful business. So one, Steve Jobs stops bleeding, and two, Pixar can become the company that he knew that it could become. And in this book, one, you know, I have two chapters that are really incredible uh, that are titled Anatomy of a Deal in Poker Time that basically tell the backstory of how Steve Jobs and Lawrence Levy renegotiated Pixar's contract with Disney. And, you know, to give you a little bit of the stakes here, uh, you know, uh, Pixar had never released a feature film and John Lasseter, who was the director of Toy Story, which was their first feature film, had never directed a feature film. And so they had no hope in the world of releasing a feature film. But they were able to, Steve Jobs was able to negotiate a deal with, with Disney, where Disney basically paid their production costs, but the contract was absolutely terrible. And so it basically the quick backstory is Lawrence Levy comes in, he you know takes a look at the business and it's, it's in pretty terrible condition. And then he takes a look at Toy Story and gets really excited. Um, then he takes a look at the contract that Pixar signed with Disney and gets really disappointed again. And the reason is because Disney had a very strong negotiating hand and basically w was able to keep... Uh, I mean, it was just exceptional. Uh, Disney basically had full control over what films would get made. Disney controlled 90%. They basically got 90% of the profits of any movie that Pixar produced. It was just an extremely one-sided deal. But it was, you know, in, in Pixar's defense and Steve's defense, it was the only way they were ever going to release their first feature film. So, you know, this is the kind of contract that Lawrence Levy inherits. And one of the, probably the highest stakes, the most interesting part of this book is uh, when um, right after they release Toy Story, and it's critically acclaimed. I mean, it's a massively successful film. Um, but, you know, the, the the future is still very dark for Pixar uh, because unless they basically renegotiate this contract with Disney, they are going to go out of business. There's just absolutely no way that they can succeed as a company. So it's very high stakes. And so, you know, Steve Jobs is known as an incredible negotiator from his 18-month uh, deal, his exclusive deal with AT&T to become the distributor of the initial iPhone, to Pixar's initial contract with Disney, to this final acquisition of Pixar by Disney. You know, Steve Jobs negotiated himself into fortunate positions time and time again. And so what I loved about this book is it's a rare glimpse into how Steve Jobs approached negotiating, literally conversations, strategizing, including how he analyzed leverage, how he separated uh, tactics from negotiating, 
um, how he avoided positional bargaining, which I think is fascinating, and how he fiercely negotiated from a position of conviction. So with all that backstory, I'm going to walk you through five principles that I've extracted from this book. And they are number one, don't engage in positional bargaining. Dig in where you have extreme conviction and don't budge. Number two, understand the difference between strategy and tactics when negotiating. Number three, analyze where you stand in relation to the other party, especially your points of leverage. And number four, get clear on what you want and why it's important to you. You have to know what success looks like. And number five, wait to negotiate until you have maximum leverage. So with that, let's jump into number one. Don't engage in positional bargaining. Dig in where you have extreme conviction and don't budge. To start, it helps to understand Steve Jobs' approach to negotiation, which was an all-out rejection of the standard approach called positional bargaining. Here's a quote from the book. The natural tendency in negotiations is to engage in positional bargaining. This means taking a position, knowing that it's not a final position, and holding in reserve a backup position. We all know what this is. This is exactly how everyone typically negotiates. I have this number, but I'm actually comfortable with this number. That's positional bargaining. The danger of positional bargaining is that it forces you to think about backup positions, which weakens your conviction in your original position. It's like negotiating against yourself. Plan A may be your optimal outcome, but inwardly, you've already convinced yourself to settle for plan B. Both Steve and I had a strong distaste for approaching negotiation this way. We preferred to develop our positions without thinking through a backup. Once Steve decided what he wanted in a negotiation, he developed something akin to a religious conviction about it. In his mind, if he didn't get what he wanted, nothing else would take its place, and so he'd walk away. This made Steve an incredibly strong negotiator. He would dig in to his positions with fierce, almost with, with a fierce, almost unbreakable grip. The risk, however, was in so overreaching that we would end up with nothing. If we were not going to have a backup plan, we had to be very careful about knowing what we wanted. So the lesson I took away from this was know what you want and what your non-negotiable items are. Then don't bargain with yourself. Hold on to these things with an unbreakable grip. But the thing I appreciate most here is, you know, just these kind of meta-analysis of this is literally how you and I, how us, how all of us have approached negotiating at various times, potentially all the time we've ever negotiated. And it's just so insightful to see, I think, Steve and Lawrence Levy just reject it outright and basically say, no, we're going to go, you know, we're going to be very thoughtful about what we're not going to budge on, but we're going to decide what that is and we're going to have extreme conviction and we're not going to budge. Um, and I think very clearly that that gives you a great hand if you're negotiating, as long as you have a positional leverage. That's number one. Number two, understand the difference between the strategy and tactics, between strategy and tactics when negotiating. I thought this was fascinating because again, it's a like meta analysis I've never done. I've never had this thought. And so it was just fascinating to read about it. Um, I found this breakdown of leverage versus versus negotiation incredibly insightful. Here's a little excerpt from the book. In business relationships or virtually any relationships for that matter, there are two factors that determines one's capacity to affect change, leverage and negotiation. And, you know, here I'm like, well, the same thing. Is this, you know, how, what's the difference between these? I thought this was fascinating. Leverage means bargaining power. It's the muscle you have to bring about change in your favor. The more leverage, the better your chances to get what you want. In poker, leverage would be the equivalent of the actual strength of your hand. So it's basically your the position that you're coming into the negotiation with and how strong that is. Negotiation describes the tactics you employ to extract the best terms you can given your leverage. Super interesting. It's about how you play the hand. Courage, fear, tenacity, trustworthiness, creativity, calm, 
the willingness to walk away, to behave irrationally, these all play into negotiation and they're tactics. You know, and so neg negotiation is both tactics. It's it's the um, it's the tactics you you employ to get what you want. And but there's also leverage. And you know, I think it's just interesting to deconstruct the two and say, okay, well, I can have a, a position of leverage, you know, great leverage, and I can employ these tactics. Or maybe I have a position of terrible leverage, but I'm irrational. And, you know, I, I strike fear into whoever I'm negotiating with. I don't know if that's the approach I'd take, but it's interesting to at least think about that as a, as a mental exercise. Leverage is an assessment of bargaining strength. Negotiation is how you put that strength to work for you. A good negotiator can make more out of the same leverage than a not so good one. In Pixar's first agreement with Disney, Pixar had fared poorly in terms of both leverage and negotiation. Pixar had not had much leverage because it had just closed down its hardware business, was struggling to remain afloat, and had never made a feature film. I mean, terrible bargaining position. In terms of negotiation, I felt Steve had been caught in a rare, weak moment. This was more than four years ago, though. Steve liked to cite the adage, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. What had occurred four years earlier was not going to happen again. Okay, so what do we take away from this? Well, I think it's just key to one, you know, pick up on this concept and really understand your bargaining strength and separate that. So your bargaining strength is your leverage and then separate that from tactics. And, you know, the way I would approach this, the way I approach this stuff is tactically, I just should show up as who I am. You know, I think it's really important. I think you're going to play your best hand if you're authentic. So think through the tactics that are you. And if that is employing fear, if that is employing irrationality, use them. If it's not, and it's about, coming from a heartfelt position or being really creative, use those, but both be really clear-eyed about your leverage and be really thoughtful about the tactics you employ. That's number two. Number three, analyze where you stand in relation to the other party, especially your points of leverage. So, so this point, you know, the, the headline may not seem that striking, but I think, it, you know, in the book, which I'll, I'll uh, go into an excerpt in a moment, it's just very clear how helpful this is. And I would say, you know, a lot of life, I think a meta lesson, is that preparation really counts. Preparation gives you conviction. Preparation gives you just a, a really clear sense of the situation. This is basically just saying, really be prepared going into negotiation. So analyze your leverage compared to the other party rationally. Then make a judgment call on if it makes sense to proceed negotiating. Okay, here's the excerpt from the book. One Friday in late January, 1996, when Steve was at Pixar, we stepped into a small windowless conference room near my office to discuss where we thought Pixar stood in relation to Disney. Okay, they're about to potentially go into negotiation. Well, let's not, you know, jump jump the gun. Let's actually first analyze the situation. As we often did, we wrote down the main points of discussion on a whiteboard. There was one in the front of the room with a wooden casing around it. We had discussed all these points before, but it was helpful to see them in one place. Steve took a whiteboard pen and made two columns. There's a Disney column and all of Disney's strengths, and there's a Pixar column and there's all of Pixar strengths. Um, let's see. Uh, under the Disney column, he would write the points that gave Disney leverage. Under the Pixar column, he would write the points that favored Pixar. The column by column breakdown ended up looking like this. So on one side, you know, where they ended up was Disney had, they had no obligation to change the contract. You know, both parties had to agree. Clearly a point of leverage. Um, they can invest in computer animation themselves. You know, they have their own animation studio, um, uh, Disney animation. And so why couldn't they just do what Pixar did? It was potentially a, you know, a point of leverage in, the, in their favor. Um, you know, uh, other Pixar options were inferior, um, which is just saying, you know, I think that um, they, they behooved them to continue to invest in Pixar, but they had other options. They had optionality. Pixar only had one hit. You know, that's clearly a point of leverage in Disney's favor. Yes, Pixar had, a, you know, a lot of strength with their first film, 
and the amount of money that it grossed, which was exceeded everything. You know, just as a just for a quick aside, you know, it's fascinating in the book to hear, you know, uh, effectively the analysis that they were doing on the economics. So again, Disney got ninety percent of the economics from from the films that Pixar would release, which is just staggering. And so, you know, basically there's a conversation around, well, let's say we have one of the most successful animation films in the history of filmmaking. And let's say we were able to um, go out and get 50 million or 75 million, or if we're crazy, 100 million, we only get to keep 10 million of that. And we have to, it's going to take us four more years. We only have $10 million from this film. And that has to, you know, tide us over for four more years. Well, Pixar or Toy Story ended up grossing $200 million. I mean, it was an outrageously successful first film, but it was still only one hit. And so that was a point of uh, leverage in Disney's favor. And, you know, the, the fifth one was just potentially animation might be losing priority. Disney has many parts of its business. Maybe it didn't really care about Pixar. Okay, on the other side, here's Pixar's point of leverage. They had IPO money to pay for productions. Um, they ended up getting, I think it was $75 million. Um, in terms of proceeds from their IPO um, that they now had to pay for productions. And in the contract, one of the things that uh, was definitely in Disney's favor in the first contract is Disney was funding the production of Pixar's films, which mean which meant that they had all these crazy terms around uh, Pixar could only work on the films that Disney had had uh, had greenlit. Um, all, all of Pixar's ideas would have to be submitted to Disney. And all this makes sense when you understand that they're funding production. And so it's definitely not a point of leverage for Pixar. But now they have this $75 million one. Number two is Toy Story success. Outrageously successful first film. Number three, DreamWorks at the time was a threat to Disney. Jeffrey Katzenberg uh, was at Disney, had a bad breakup, decided to leave and, and basically formed a competitor. And that was definitely top of mind for, for Disney. And then the fourth was, uh, you know, potentially, and this was, you know, you have to think through all the strategy when negotiating. But the last one was Pixar's contract with Disney wasn't over. And so they were effectively going early and saying, hey, can we come to new terms? But, you know, potentially there's always the, the chance that if they just wait to the end of the contract, they might be in a better position. And so it's nebulous, but that's effectively what the breakdown looked like. It was difficult to assess how this would shake out. Both of us had leverage, but did Pixar have, have enough to force a negotiation now and on favorable terms? Great question. I felt we had enough to find out. Just one of our four points would be sufficient to bring Disney to the negotiation table, and we were not afraid to wait if it didn't materialize. I think we should go for it, I said to Steve. First, understand your position, then create a strategy to make the most of it. That's number three. Okay, number four, get clear on what you want and why it's important to you. You have to know what success looks like before you go into a negotiation. So what we just did was basically analyze, okay, what's our uh, points of leverage, points of strength going into negotiation? Well, it's great. It gives you a sense of if you should enter and how strong of a position you're going to be in when you enter negotiations. Well, the other side of that coin, if you're successful, is what terms you really want to bargain for, what, what terms you really want to negotiate for. And so that's what this fourth lesson is all about. Before you enter a negotiation, it's paramount that you know exactly what you want and why it's important to you. Here's how Lawrence Levy and Steve Jobs got clear about what they wanted uh, in their new deal with Disney. Excerpt from the book. Steve changed the whiteboard pen for a new color, and in a different part of the board, he wrote New Deal. Below that, he wrote, number one, creative control. We need control over our creative destiny, Steve asserted. We've proven we can make a great film. We can't go on indefinitely beholden to Disney to approve our creative choices. Unless you were Steven Spielberg, Ron Howard, or another celebrity uh, director, it was almost unheard of for an independent production company whose films were being funded by somebody else to have creative control. That usually belonged to whoever was putting up the money. 
We'd already decided that John Lasseter and his team would have creative control within Pixar. Now we wanted to diminish any outside influence over them. It will help that we are willing to fund our films, I added, but Disney will be nervous about this so long as they're putting up uh, even some of the money for production. Nevertheless, we both agreed that creative control was essential to Pixar's future. Another must-have is favorable release windows. This is number two in terms of what they really wanted to negotiate for. It mattered a lot when films were released, especially big-budget family films. There were two optimal windows, early summer and Thanksgiving, which runs into Christmas. No other time periods during the year came even close in terms of the box office opportunity. So just looking at historical sales, these windows were really, you only wanted to release a family, a big budget family film in these windows. And so they wanted to make sure that their films were going to get released. Because again, Disney was effectively owned marketing and releasing them. So, so there was nothing preventing Disney from basically releasing the film in an unideal window. Very clearly, this is in Pixar's interest and they need this to happen. Any contract we entered with Disney or anyone else would have to guarantee that Pixar films enjoyed optimal film release windows. Steve wrote on the whiteboard, number two, favorable release windows. Disney has to treat Pixar film releases like its own, Steve added, to emphasize that point. Then he wrote number three, true 50-50 profit share. This was a big one. All of our financial projections told us that we had to keep at least 50% of the profits from our films. A true 50-50, Steve said, calculated fairly. Not using ancient Hollywood accounting terms that favor the studios. It's a whole separate topic. I'm ordering a book on it. I'll do a breakdown uh, soon. But it was fascinating to, to get some of the behind the scenes, a little bit of behind the scenes glimpse into just how complicated and just how in the studio's favor it is when they release a film and have a profit share. There's basically all the incentives are ensuring that they account all sorts of crazy expenses as costs so that basically the bottom line profit is very small. And so it was just fascinating. So not using ancient Hollywood accounting terms, the crazy ones that make it so there's really no profit left over um, that favor the studios. Uh, so that was number three. That brings the branding issue I went on. Pixar's film under Pixar's names. We had discussed this endlessly. Steve wrote number four, Pixar brand. We made the film, Steve said, the world needs to know that. And the context for this was when Toy Story was released, Pixar wasn't even mentioned. It said Disney presents or Disney animation presents. And so really what they were fighting for, and this is another term that made this initial contract so terrible, really what they were fighting for is exactly what we see today when Pixar releases films, which is 50-50 branding. So it's not just to say you have to mention both names, but optically, visually, you have to have them side by side. They have to look about the same. Can't have a massive Disney and a tiny Pixar, true 50-50. Um, and this is very clearly important. It was also interesting to me that it makes sense for Steve. But Steve from day one knew that Pixar's brand was really important. And so, uh, you know, I think this clearly makes sense. All of Steve's company's brand has been a, a, a uh, immense value driver, immense store of value. Um, and so it just makes sense that this was important for Steve. Anything else? Steve asked. Of the big issues? No, I said. There are the ones, these are the ones we stick to no matter what. Now the whiteboard had a column that said New Deal, number one, Creative Control, Number two, favorable release windows. Number three, true 50-50 profit share. And number four, Pixar brand. Uh, we understood there would be many other issues in any renegotiation, but on these four matters, our plan was to hold firm. If we gave up on any of these, Pixar's future would be jeopardized too much. These were our deal breakers. I think we're ready, I said. I'll call Eisner, Steve replied. I'll tell him what we have in mind. What's the lesson here? Map out what's non-negotiable for you and stick to those items. You have to have conviction in every item on the list. Again, you know, Pixar didn't come up with 20 things. They were like, these are our five non-negotiables. So every item on your list should be non-negotiable. 
It should be very clear to you why it's important. And you should feel so strongly about it that you are willing to walk away from the deal if you don't get one of those items. You know, no exceptions. And you have to be able to articulate why they're important to yourself. Because if you can't do that, you're never going to be able to be compelling in a negotiation. Okay, that's number four. Let's move on to number five. Wait to negotiate until you have maximum leverage. Once you're mentally and physically prepared to, to negotiate, wait to strike until you have maximum leverage. At Pixar, this meant waiting to reach out to Disney until after the release of Toy Story. Again, this had actually been on Lawrence's mind and Steve Jobs' uh, mind for a very long time. But they very clearly waited. They knew, they, they felt in their bones that Toy Story was going to be very successful. And they waited. They waited until the release of Toy Story, until it was very clear that it was uh, not just a blockbuster hit, but one of the most successful movies of all time. And then they say, okay, we're now in a position. We've got the leverage that we want. Let's go and renegotiate with Disney. Um, so they waited until after the release of Toy Story. Um, the halo effect of Toy Story's success significantly improved Pixar's odds of getting the terms they wanted. What's the lesson here? Always wait to negotiate until you're in the most advantageous, advantageous position possible. This is how Lawrence and Steve reasoned through this when timing when to renegotiate with Disney. Quick excerpt from the book. If we're going to make a move to renegotiate with Disney, I suggested one night in early 19, in, uh, sorry, in January 1996, we should start thinking seriously about it right away while Toy Story's success is still fresh. Or maybe we're better off waiting, Steve said, until we're free to negotiate with other studios and have more flexibility to pick our best distribution partner. Again, this was something they could do. They didn't need to renegotiate with Disney. If they waited until the end of the contract, you know, imagine they could have parties bidding against one another. This, this was a potential outcome. Making the move now made sense only if we thought we could negotiate a deal that would be strong enough to justify giving up our options in the future. They ended up deciding to negotiate then rather than wait until the end of their original contract with Disney, and they were able to achieve a fantastic outcome. And the lesson here is timing matters. So all the quotes and the stories that I covered today, again, are from this excellent book. Um, I'll be doing a book summary on it soon. It's To Pixar and Beyond by Lawrence Levy. And it's an insider's never-before-told story about how a struggling computer animation company called Pixar became one of the greatest entertainment businesses of all time. If you enjoyed this, you can get the Friday Five delivered completely for free uh, in, your, in your inbox every single week. Just go to newsletter.outlieracademy.com. Again, go to newsletter.outlieracademy.com. You can find a link as well to the newsletter in the show notes uh, on this video or in the podcast that you're listening to. Thank you so much. Be back with another Friday Five next week.